welcome back to another week of the Geek Whispers. I'm Amy Lewis. I'm Matt Brenner. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we are here live, 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 but you'll hear it as a recording, at Spice World 2015 in Austin, Texas. And I have to say, props to the amount of tacos I've consumed so far. I'm, I'm really pleased with the taco consumption of this And happens. the breakfast taco, which oh, is an bre- Austin specialty, I it, understand. It's a, a work of art. But forget that. Like, if you think about great concepts, let's talk about Spice Works itself. So we have the very person <laughs> to talk to us about that here today. So, Scott Abel, can you introduce yourself? I sure can. Scott Abel, I uh, was the founding CEO of Spice Works up until January of this year, and I am now our chief strategy officer. All right, we're definitely going to dig into that title change in a bit, but we're going to have to wait for the stunning conclusion. We really wanted to talk to you about a number of things. So we're talking about careers, and it's not every day we get to have somebody on the podcast who has started any number of companies. Well, how on earth do you, when you're when you're coming out of grade school, do you think, when I grow up, I'm going to start a bunch of companies? How on earth do you get started? How does one do that? You didn't take that class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like seventh grade. Be normal or be dysfunctional and start companies. <laughs> I took that so was it, was it always a dream or did you just fall into it? Or? Well, I, I hate this question because... Uh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you. Because uh, my answer is so lame, but... I never set out and said, I want to start a company. And I never wanted to be CEO. I'll come back to that in a second. But what I did is I, as I worked for a couple of small companies, I started to see, like, how do you go from blank slate to something? And that started to bug me. Like, that was the itch I was trying to scratch in in my first one. So, in in some ways, the driver was wanting to know how to create a company and led you to, uh, you must be a method actor in a way that you you had to go out and try. Yes, (laughs) I'm in marketing. I'm going to frame it in a moment. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) Yeah, you wanted to make something out of nothing and see that process all the way through. It kind of tells you the audience, too. It's very sysadmin-y to want to go take apart the clock to see how clocks work. Like, you took a part of company before you made it. Well, they, the first one, I think what kicked it off was when I worked early at Next. You know, when I came into Next, it was about four years in, they already had the product. Not right away, but over maybe a couple years, I started to think about, like, how do you get to here? Right? There is this piece of hardware and software, and originally they walked in and there was nothing on the whiteboard. How do you get there? How did you even, so I know we're talking about you did it in a very sysadmin teach yourself kind of way. I mean, that's an amazing leap to make. If you never started a company and then you do that, how did you do it? How did you take classes? Did you find no, I cheated. I'm a big cheater. Uh, <laughs> and so the first one, I kind of got lucky that I joined a founding team. First company was Motive. And I was one of five founders. I was not the founding CEO. I wasn't the founding product guy. To this day, actually, I'm not quite sure why. They let me be a founder. To be very honest. I just... A little bit perplexing. I'm gonna go have breakfast with the co-founder CEO and ask him, and he'll go dork. <laughs> but, um, um, but what I would wanted to get, I knew what I wanted to get out of it was this, because they had worked early at Tivoli, and I was pretty sure two guys in particular, Scott Harmon, who was the founding CEO, and Mike Maples Jr., who now runs Flagate Capital. They were product guys. I knew they knew how to do that. And so selfishly, I'm like, oh, that's what I'll get out of this. Now, I was a little perplexed. They were getting out of it, but that wasn't my problem. (laughs) So you were able to learn in a team environment. So to have that experience, but learn from people who had that experience and 
Were there other ways, or you just got in there and did it? And for me, uh, that that was it. I, I literally remember there, there were two really visceral memories of that experience in the very beginning. One was day one, because I had been responsible for going all these important duties, like getting the office space and buying the desks, and I was office boy. And um, which is a lot harder than people think. It is. But it's not particularly cerebral. Um, but it's it's for the official first day. And I have, I'm literally putting things around on my desk and my pencils and pad, and then it hits me. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. And I reach for the phone and I call my wife. I'm like, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and right then, Harmon walks in and he's like, come on, let's go. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so that worked out. Some, somebody knew what to do. It is like in a play in some ways, like, what's going to be my next line? And somebody yeah. walks on stage. Was there any hesitation? Sometimes we get uh, we talk about fear and mm-hmm. stepping into the unknown. And a lot of people who have worked for a bigger company or had a stable paycheck in general, starting a company, even if you have a little funding, you're on a boat and it's a big ocean. Was there any hesitation from you or from your family about paycheck or the risk profile of a startup? You know, everybody goes, oh, no, there was not. And I'm just trying to really remember. Because it it, the first one was a long time ago. And after you do it a couple times, you get used to the fear. And do you think it's because you started at the time in your career life? Does that make a difference? So you jumped in because it felt more fear, like a fearless time? Well, we started out of 1997. So it was before the bubble when, like, everybody was doing mm-hmm. And, I mean, I remember my wife and I, we didn't have kids, but we had a long talk about it. And I took a massive, I took a almost 70% pay cut to start. Wow. See, there you go, yeah. You know, we just had this, like, worst case, what's the worst case scenario? Like, okay, I probably have a paycheck for a year. It's not much of one. I was looking for a job before this happened. Mm -hmm. I might be looking for a job when it fails. Yeah. Yeah. So what? A very honest assessment of like risk and reward. And the possible reward was great, especially at that time. So uh, out of curiosity, just to continue the framing, what were you doing before that? Before the first one, I was vice president of professional services at Next. And that happened because in 1994, I started the consulting practice at Next from scratch. So I kind of went into Steve's office and said, Here's how we reliably sell Next Step software. It involves one of the SEs being tied up on site for six months. That costs a lot of money. I think people pay for that. And he yelled at me and said, we're never, we'll be in the consulting business over my dead body. <laughs> but he didn't throw anything at me. He took that as a yes. He took that as a yes. Yeah. And so I went and booked the first for 5000 So I got up to about fifty grand in revenue before I went back and said, by the way, we're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's a good best practice. <laughs> and aside then, with all these with these movies coming out about Steve Jobs, uh, are you going to go see them? And do you have any Steve Jobs stories? I have lots of Steve Jobs stories. <laughs> that you can tell sure in public. Uh, yeah, let me just say this, that most, you know, like if you read the book, Isaacson's book, mm-hmm. I thought it was very fair kind of caricature of Steve and, and what he was really like. I haven't seen any of the recent movies. If anything, it was probably a little kind, which mm-hmm. I'm okay with, you know, given he passed away. It's an interesting legacy because he's almost worshipped in Silicon Valley in some ways, but yet we also have this character portrait of him. But as a business leader, he was kind of an asshole sometimes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was. 
what lessons, leadership lessons, did you take from him then? No, I'll tell you some great ones. Because you don't seem like an asshole. Just we've interviewed you a couple times, but I mean, you don't come off like oh, it, at least in public. <laughs> you know, look, maybe sadly, maybe not. When we started Spice Works, because I'd had a lot of time to reflect after you know working at Next, starting a company. I think you do some things earlier in life that when you reflect back on, you go, oh, I'm not sure I really love that guy, you know, if you're really honest. And so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what did I want the culture of Spiceworks to be and not be. Mm-hmm. And Steve had a huge impact on that. It was just a lot of negatives I wanted to remove. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there are probably some positives that come from that mercurial behavior, when it comes to motivating people, I just don't think it's worth it you know, on a universal scale for me. It might be worth it for other people, but it's very destructive. They walk around uncomfortable all the time and thinking they're not worthy and all these other things that I don't think it was conscious or malicious on his part. It just was the way he was wired. I promise. There was some uh, commentary about the recent Amazon stories. And uh, there's some quote about somebody saying it's a place where you have a bunch of high achievers feeling inadequate about themselves. That's the way you motivate them, you know, which is the same kind of thing. That sounds very next-like. You know, I was never materially at Apple after Steve came back, so I can't comment on that. But that that describes next pretty well. Yeah, and so you went about in your leadership goals for Spiceworks in particular to sculpt a culture that didn't have these qualities. What, What qualities did you want? out of the company. When we started Spiceworks, the first assignment I gave the co-founders, because we did not know what product or business model or anything like that, what came first was write down all the things about the last seven or eight years you didn't like. Oh, wow. Uh, just so open-ended. And had you guys been at the previous company together? They all together? from my last company. Okay. And it's yeah. fantastic that I did not show up at the top of the list, of each list. I was a little worried about that. <laughs> so you basically did a post-mortem, practically, to start of, like, let's clear the air. And did you just say that you established your culture before you even had the business model? Well, kind of. So, yes. What I was trying to get at, it's a little backwards, but I think a lot of times we try to build these aspirational visions of what we want to be. And that might be possible if you're smarter than me, but I was pretty sure I would fail at that. <laughs> But I thought I would be pretty good at documenting what I knew I didn't like and recognizing what I already knew I didn't like. So I said, let's do that and watch that list like a hawk mm-hmm. and, and try to design all that crap out. And then we could have failed at that, right? That, that isn't a guarantee of anything, but that seemed more likely to be successful than some, you know, oh, world peace and free <laughs> or whatever it is you want to you want to believe in sure. that I wasn't sure I could make go happen, and so that's what we did. Wrote that down, sorted the list. Some had to do with software and how it got built because mm-hmm. the guys didn't like how enterprise software got built. Mm-hmm. Bunch was go to market, and then about sixty percent was culture. Hmm. Well, wow. and, and it does kind of get to our next bucket. So we know you got into the starting of companies business by getting into the business and. How did you learn, and what are some of the other things you did to learn to grow a business, to take it from that zero to one phase? Uh, well, screwing up a lot helps. <laughs> we got really good at failure. It's it immensely <laughs> valuable to watch one, right? So to be a, a co-founder, and, and I would say, honestly, I think contribution-wise, a pretty minor co-founder, 
I think, compared for the business we're in. And, and if I was really objective about proportionally the value that got added. So I got to watch, I think, a pretty well-executed movie. And as we've established, slow but not stupid. So I just tried to pay attention, take copious mental notes, just in case I would need it again. Well, just in case happened. Second one spun out of the first one, massive failure. $60 million failure, high to the dot-com boom. Big failures are fantastic learning experiences if you're paying attention. And so, and I also said I'd absolutely never do one again because that experience sucked. <laughs> yeah. I'll never go for you. Started to like dating. Time goes by, we get lonely. <laughs> get the band back together. Yeah. Because one of my co-founders went through the second experience with me, that was a very intense, okay, let's not do these things again. It was very visceral. And so I, was, I had a partner, one of the four of us, who was just as passionate as me about, don't do these jacked up things. And that helped so can I ask, it's pretty personal, but when I think about these things, like you had a massive failure as you just framed it. How do you keep the did energy? I say massive? I'm pretty <laughs> sure you said massive. Did I say like gargantuan? <laughs> we can substitute that in. Yeah. So I'm wondering like what kept you sure, or maybe sure is not the right word, but what kept you confident that you should pursue this, that you should go for the next one? I would tell you we are here today because I was pretty sure we would fail. You were pretty sure we would you would fail. Yeah. And you figured why not? Or so there's I'm a longtime martial artist, and there's this old adage in the samurai: you go into battle knowing you're dead already. Mm. That's the only way to kind of fight with real you know zeal and vigor and have a chance of winning. And while not conscious, I don't want to paint the wrong picture, I think subconsciously this was going on. All I wanted to do was have the experience. I didn't really care if it worked. I wanted these four guys trying to do something cool, no cultural baggage, and like, yeah, if it failed, whatever, at least he lose some money, he was going to lose his money anyway. And I was that honest with them. That's great. So as you think about growing that company, any of the companies, and Spiceworks is a, a great example. What were some of the things that you did, if you had a practical set of things for our listeners, to take it when you see it and you're, you've got the office space and you're, you're running along and you're 20 people and suddenly you're 100 people and suddenly that's doubled and it's doubling again. What are some of the things that you do to structure that group? I can't take responsibility for this quote. I, last person I saw it, I tribute to the Google founders. Hire slow, hire fast. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, some of the biggest mistakes, it's so easy when you're growing fast. Well, this will be better than nothing. I've literally made for, we, we have a class we teach now, it's called Spice Camp for first-time managers. And I have a... Um, I want to go to Spice Camp. I want to go to Spice Camp. <laughs> I brought a bag. <laughs> well, and Jen Slasky runs a big chunk of it, so it's probably literally like that. <laughs> but I have, on hiring and firing, I have this slide called warning signs. Mm -hmm. And I found this is the easiest way to get it across to people. It's some warning signs of when you hear this, kind of run through the door. Mm. And it's interesting, so you talked about making mental notes, but obviously you have documented a lot of that too. Is that one of the things you would put as a best practice as you observe to make sure you document so you can educate and train? Or 
kind of misled you. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just jazz hands? <laughs> uh, I, I, tend to, I have a pretty good memory, so I tend to... I don't literally write it all down. I tend to, in transition, write a bunch of stuff down. So I've gone through the exercise, kind of for fun, as, as phenomenally well as Spiceworks has gone. I've gone through the mental exercise, but what would I do differently? Like mm-hmm. now, 10 years on the other side of it, it's been this amazing experience, different business model, everything else. What would I do differently? Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't get stuck in the past. And so that's when I did it, you know, coming out of my last one, I sat down before I went to the co-founders and I did a bunch of that because I was trying to understand if I don't like going to work every day, what went wrong? Otherwise, I'm just going to do it again. Yeah. It's almost like you can't change something if you're not paying attention to what it is and you've turned that into a cultural element here. That's, that's impressive. More of the martial arts training. I'm seeing a theme here. (laughs) Okay, Scott, so we understand you, you showed up without a product ready to go. and That's great because it certainly worked out. We've uh, <laughs> seen your presentations and your adoption once Spiceworks launched was huge. When it came to determining how you launched a product, like how, how did you start weighing the possibility versus the opportunity and, and using the skills of your team to find the right product fit? And also, how much as a CEO do you feel like you are the painter versus letting the painters paint, right? How much did you put your own personal thumbprint on what got built? That's a great question. I, I think maybe at best I might have put the canvas, you know, on the frame. And <laughs> you said, you hey, brought the easel. Here's some paint stuff. Well, you had a founding team. That's a little sometimes... Uh, yeah, I was really lucky. Enough. I mean, you know, if you think about how venture guys value early stage companies when there isn't much of a product, if it's still in the concept phase... It's often how many of the disciplines do you need when you're running a company are filled by the founding team. And so uh, the thing to care about first to your question is product guy. We had two and a half or three. I'm one, Greg's one, Francis one, Greg, Jay's about half of one, maybe three and a half. So we check, check, check. You know, is there somebody who understands go to market marketing? That's what Jay did at my last company for me. Yeah, I think he's great at that, brilliant. Do you have solid technical guy at two? And so if we were an enterprise software company, we'd be missing a VP of professional services. I'd done that before. So we didn't have a sales guy. Pretty much nothing else was missing, right? And, and so for me, unless you're super egocentric, why would you try to do those jobs? Now, I'm a product guy, so I did, my role ended up kind of by accident being the UI guy. Because it's not the strength of the two technical guys per se. And so in a vacuum, you got like the third string dude. But you got the third string dude who cared a bunch and would be dogmatic and unwavering. And so maybe maybe that was my tiny contribution. But materially, they did all the painting. I I can take no credit for that. One would argue that the UI, and increasingly, that we've gotten ourselves into a situation in deck, right? The UI and the UX is super important, though. Like, if you can't use the product or it's hard no, to use. I, I agree. Look, I, I think it might have been that this is one of the positives, I think, that came from Steve is this aesthetic and sensibility and a willingness to say, hopefully nicely, not the other way, sorry, that's not going to cut it. You know, I remember early on, if, if the goal was build the first version of Spiceworks, which was just the inventory, 
get the data off the disk onto the screen, I could have done it with one developer and took four and a half. Because we had these little requirements like gorgeous, fun, different. Mm. Like, go and write that down for a developer. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and that, that turned into, eh, not working for me. And they're like, to Brett Syed's here to talk to him. He actually was doing development back then. Poor guy's just saying, I don't know why he's still here. Yeah. <laughs> not for kind of 10 years. But that was just this gestalt of like, no, I don't think we're there yet. And, and then I'm going, okay, we'll try again. Wow, and that's a, leadership. I mean, that's confidence. That's not being afraid to fail and pushing it through or assuming you will and thus fighting on. And props to you because I think it is easy to compromise. It is so easy to compromise. There's so many financial pressures and, and I'm sure departmental pressures are pressures and, and to hold strong well, to the I vision. think one thing that helped us deal with it was we were structural about it. So rather than just say, you know, it's my opinion, I make this prettier, <laughs> I would remind them. We're in a commodity market. We picked a space, desktop management, it's commoditized. I had proof. In our time in motion study I mentioned in the keynote, no, we never found a vendor that had more than 2% market share. Mm. Two, not 20, that would be a commodity market, two. So I just remind them, guys, if we want to stand out, you compete on three things in a commodity market. You compete on aesthetics, ease of use, and price. So it has got to be different good not just different like ugly yeah and and why I, I can't tell you the answer we will know it when we see it and we're not there yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and at the other extreme you have to at some point go okay we gotta go you know and you're a small company know. you can't do everything yeah and, and you know you just guess that's yeah. the thing i didn't have any magic crystal ball i didn't uniquely know when it was right for all i know it never really was right other things contribute to where we are. It's hard to see. No, but it sounds like there's a system of trust and balance and multiple perspectives, the right principles in, in place. I mean, they, and there's metrics. a lot. For yeah, you. Metrics yeah, as well. Metrics. Thank yeah. you very much. I meant all that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, a, a lot of the, just also perfect word, the, the whole was more than the sum of its parts, and it added up to something that worked really well, and it's still here. Well, I can't resist. I have to get to the stunning conclusion. You dropped a couple hints. Talk to us about this title change. Well, talk spell to us about that other thing anymore. Like, I'm really bad at spelling. Uh, spell. uh, I, mean, I assume you're referring to. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, for the listener who is unaware, uh, so yeah, I'm founding CEO of Spiceworks, and I was up until January uh, 15th of this year at which time I handed the reins of running the company over to my co-founder, Jay Hallberg, who is now CEO, and I took on the role of executive board member and chief strategy officer. So there you go. Talk to us about what it's like to make that decision. How do you know it's time? How do you do that peacefully? And how do you do it, you know, knowing it's the right thing? Uh, I think it's really hard. I, you know, I'd love to, to paint this picture that tells you it's really easy. I'm going to digress a little bit. Feel free. Just because I think it is genuinely an important part of the story, uh, I'm a leukemia survivor. And this had a big hand in the decision for me. So when you do something like that, if you get to the other side, if you're lucky enough to get to the other side, most people end up making a bunch of promises. They don't keep them all. I decided I'm going to keep them all. And one of them was, I am never going to do things I don't like again. I think I've earned the right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, early investors in the company, I was crystal clear with. So it was really important to me, if you put money into Spiceworks, 
you understood exactly where I, I stood because I didn't plan on changing and I wasn't going to have that conversation where you act like you didn't hear me. And so... <laughs> There's something powerful about someone, just to characterize this for our listeners, that Scott is such a, he's got such a presence, he's got this calm about him, but that is such a drop the mic moment. That is the quiet swagger. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's the quiet table flip, if that's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's again, I'm feeling the martial arts. Like you run at somebody and they just hold up a hand and like in a great kung fu movie, they go flying through the air, right? That's my vision. And trust me, it's not as cool as she's making <laughs> You're welcome, you're welcome. Um, and, and honestly... I thought I was over-communicating because I'm never going to have to worry about this. Here's what's going to happen. Product will work. This is crazy. Business model will fail. Come on, it's nuts. And then two or three years later, they'll go, okay, didn't work out. Great product. Let's sell the company for 10 million bucks and we'll go do it again. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we'll do that like four or five times. That'll be awesome. We'll make a tiny little bit of money. That's an awesome life. And then they messed it up. <laughs> and they got really successful and they did a good job. And, and so in 2013, when it was clear that the company was getting to a size where, you know, it's serious to your point, like 400 people, it's a real company, it's not 4,000, it's getting big and maybe someday in its future it will go public. And I don't know anything about the SJ. Uh, so you can talk about these things now, right? You don't have to yeah, carry that. That's right. I don't have to carry anymore. <laughs> But, but as that started happening, one of the founding board members, John Thornton, he literally asked, he's like, well, congratulations, good job. Why? Remember that conversation? I do. Where you kind of schooled me? What's your plan? And uh, I, I thought, oh, yeah. Thanks <laughs> for reminding me about that. Because they're, they're usually it's go get an outside CEO, mm-hmm. which is fraught with cultural risk. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get lucky, most of the time you don't. They fail three out of four times. I thought, well, I should at least, I'd never ask, did one of my co-founders want the job? I'm just pretty sure Greg and Francis didn't want the job, but I asked. Some proxy of hell no came back very quickly. <laughs> but, but Jay, Harvard, MBA and everything, uh, his answer was, actually, it's kind of on my list. I just never imagined you wouldn't do it. And so we started to talk about it very openly, and um, I said, look, think real hard. Here are my reasons why. For me personally, I want to do the things I love, and we're, I'm noticing we're getting to the size where I now have to choose, do these product things, which I love, or do these other things that are very necessary, yeah. that I don't like, and I'm choosing to do this, and it's hurting us. Mm-hmm. And if I keep that up, then they're just going to fire me. We won't be in control. Mm-hmm. The more we talked about it, we did. We kind of did a test. He was COO for about a year and a half, 15 months maybe. Embarrassingly so, things got much better. <laughs> Just proved how brilliant I was. <laughs> you know, and so then it was just kind of natural. I had to nudge the board a little bit because boards don't like change and, and for all the good reasons. You know, they're like, wow, nothing's really broken. He's doing everything fine. I just had to remind him, here's where we're headed. Eventually, we're going to be in a place. I'm just not going to want to do that job. And you'd be way better off. He's had several years before you get there. I, I love that. I love the future looking of it. And I love the honest assessment of where your energy lies and what drew you, which part of the business drew you, and how the portfolio would change in time. You know, I think if you asked Jay, I think he would honestly say, 
I think he, like all the founders, have loved the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I hope they do that. <laughs> um, I don't think he would say he just loved, loved the first three or four the way I did. Mm-hmm. He came into his as we got bigger. And he's, I don't mean this in any way derogatory, I mean it's a compliment. He's an optimizer. Mm-hmm. That's what he is. And it's a little bit of a cliche to talk about different stages of companies and how the job is so different, but it's really, that's a lot of it's truth. incredibly there. relevant. And, and yeah, I think startup people, and mid-size, very different. Right, and I think when people try to cover that up and not assess that, it's when companies actually get in trouble. When you try to treat everything on day one like it is on day five, seven, 30, it's, it's not the same. And the idea that, of course, people can evolve and change, and maybe this is not in their sweet spot. Something changes, and then it becomes their sweet spot. That's that's an honest evaluation. We're not automatons. Like it is, it's a much clearer human way to there, approach it. There is a school of thought that says, "Oh, you're just shortchanging yourself. If you pushed yourself and put yourself in that situation, and you grow into it, and that could all be true." Mm-hmm. But for me, because of my unique situation, I always weigh that and go, "Okay, there's a cost of that. Those things aren't free. They're not free in time. They're not free in emotion. They're not free in any of those things." Uh, and maybe that's a statement. I'm further along in my career. You know, Jay's he's 13, 14 years younger than me. Um, I just didn't want to do it. I wonder if most people do. Again, the advice is push through. And you're right, that might be right advice for somebody. But being able to have another choice where you can absolutely contribute, you feel good about it, the company feels good about it, it can be a positive outcome to take a different route. It doesn't have to be to the bitter end. You know, it, you can do it differently. It doesn't have to be up or out in all phases right, of all things, right? No, I think that's very powerful. And then we were talking a little bit before of, and you said it took a lot of time and you took us through the process. How was that? Again, we've just been talking about work-life balance a lot on our podcast. How was that in sort of positioning that with your whole family and in terms of, and this is a big change, right? Was Well, my poor wife, so this is the third startup <laughs> I've started, I'm going to phrase that. It's the sixth startup I've been at. I believe she describes oh it as, at first it was work, and then it was hobby, and now I've come to the conclusion it's a disease. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think she's under any illusion that this means, like, maturely more time with her. It might be, it has been some more, you know, a couple more long weekend trips, and she might see me before eight at night. <laughs> if Spice Works ever ended up not needing me, I would probably do something else. It's just that process, you know, because I don't. Spice Works is has been successful enough already. I I have the luxury that I don't have to worry about a paycheck every day. I'm not sure I can completely retire, but I can just worry about what I what I like to do, and uh, I could not sit at home all day. It's just not your blood. Yeah. And I like this concept of startup as a disease. I think we're on something. Well, but I'm guessing you have you worry about a different set of things now, though. Uh, How so? Well, as not as not CEO. As CEO, you're worried about a whole different set of things as, as CSO. I don't worry about that much oh. anymore. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, probably the most of what I worry about now is culture related. Mm-hmm. Because we're at this size where. First, I've never personally experienced driving the company in this phase, so there are lots of things that are in my bag of tricks from zero to 400, and I have nothing from 400 to question mark. Mm-hmm. And, and so I worry about, can you sustain the exact same culture? How do you sustain that culture? What 
is the tipping point I'm not seeing. You know what I mean? What's the jump the shark moment? I haven't seen it yet. And then I'm like six months from I missed it. What was that thing? Well, you're a method actor. I can I can imagine this has got appeal to you because you just said you're now doing again something you've never done before. And that seems to be a little bit of what pulls you forward. It, it, it definitely is, yeah. After a while, I get... As long as it's in that spectrum. Like, like I'm not a... You were talking about metrics. I'm a big believer in them. But at some point, you know, staring at the chart and going... I think it's the, I'm an INTJ, the N in me, that's more an S thing. And, and at some point I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that won't tell you how to get the graph from here to here. And that, I enjoy that more. Now, that's way less predictable. You know, like you may have to do 10 of those that end up on the floor instead before you get to the ceiling. But that process, like, when you hit one like this that goes to the ceiling, that's kind of cool. I feel like I have to ask our favorite closing question, but um, you have ruined it a little bit by foresight because I always ask people and a lot of people are unwilling to talk about what's the one thing they would never do again. And you, you had people write a whole list of it. So is there, there's something career wise that you would share with people to frame that same question. If they were making their list of things not ever to do again, what would you counsel them to make sure it's on their list? I'll tell you the biggest mistake career mistake I've done it twice because I'm slow. (laughs) There's a theme here. Twice I have taken a job for title and position instead of interest. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's big. At both times, supremely rationalized it. The second time, really, really well. (laughs) And I bet it it wasn't 45 days into that job. I was like, damn it. (laughs) Again. Um, but it's one of those classic things. I'm sure everybody's like, I deserve blah. Yeah. I worked hard. You check off all these like real achievements, not mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. time has passed. Or, like mm-hmm. real achievements. I should be blah. There's a path there that you should be following and a career promotion. There's a little bit of that, a little bit of that social, you know. And there's energy behind it. People kind of uh, and, say, and so my advice, whenever you hear, I should be blah, mm-hmm. uh, it, I don't know, different people are different, but stop that's a great one think about I want blah instead of I should be when it's always worked out well there was a skill I coveted Mm. and there was a set of people who had the skill I I may not be able to learn it I'm like wow if I put myself around them I put myself in that job as long as I was I wanted to versus someone I didn't want then that usually always worked out and ironically other things that I'm telling you to not want showed up. It's kind of like that old adage, you know, the journey is the reward. When you go after it, to me, a title is like a destination and you never get there. I just read this article I'm obsessed with now. It talked about people presume that success will bring you happiness. And when the social scientists studied it, they found it was the reverse. That people who sought happiness found that success followed. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. And and it sounds like on point with your story. I think that's totally true. Uh, and, and I think uh, by proxy, that's why they say, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. You're successful enough in the right context, it usually comes with money. And then you'll see, you know, startup people who have a lot of money sell their jets and go 
live in a hovel and start another company. Because <laughs> they've I got the disease. <laughs> they can't get that virus out of there. It's a so, disease. So it's not a virus. It's deeper. <laughs> so if people are looking to pick up a jet on the cheap or find you in the hovel, Scott, where can people follow up with you? Where where can they find you online and out there in the world? I'm a pretty hard guy to reach. <laughs> uh, look, they can always email me at SpiceWorks. Sable, S-A-B-E-L at SpiceWorks.com is probably the best way. I don't, I'm not a big social media fan. Uh, the introvert in me, it doesn't compute really. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's showing up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. This is a wonderful story and I, I think very inspirational for our listeners. So we are, really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. You guys are always very kind. To Thanks. Me. It's great. So until next time, this is another week of the Geek Whispers over and out. You've been listening to the Geek Whisperers podcast, where we bring social media and community to enterprise IT. You can listen to all the episodes at our website, geek-whisperers.com, or check us out on Twitter, Facebook, or iTunes. Your hosts were John Mark Troyer, Amy Lewis, and Matthew Brender, better known on Twitter as Jay Troyer, Comms Ninja, and MJ Brender. See you next week. 